welcome to the Creative Financing Podcast, where you'll learn how to structure terms and use various creative financing strategies to create profitable deals for short and long-term wealth. Whether you're a buy and hold investor, wholesaler, or flipper, learning creative financing will help you do more deals and unlock profits that you may not even know existed. On the Creative Financing Podcast, we break down actual deals we and our guests are doing and simplify the methods and terms used to execute these strategies. Now, let's dive in and create some terms. Hello and welcome to the Creative Financing Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Gallegos, here with for Appaport. And today, guys, this is uh, episode number two with uh, our special guest, uh, Russ O'Donnell. He's a residential mortgage loan originator. He helps uh, people stay compliant with the Dodd-Frank, Act, the Dodd-Frank Compliance and the SAFE Act. And if you don't know what any of that is, go back to our last episode, listen to that, um, because we talk about um, what that is and why it's important to you as an investor uh, in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into um, how to stay compliant, how to be compliant, stay compliant, some tips on that, and um, really how you qualify your buyer or your borrowers, right? So you want to take it from here, Russ? Yeah, sure. Uh, where would you guys like to start? We can, uh, if you'd like, we can just start with maybe how the process works a little bit. Uh, and we'll dig into that and we'll just kind of keep it open. If you guys get a question, uh, jump in and then we can uh, just kind of drill everything down. Well, um, what, I'd, what I'd like to do, Russ, if it's all right with you. So we've talked about, hey, if we're going to be wholesaling these kinds of deals, um, we've talked somewhat about, hey, if we're selling them to another investor, um, after you kind of give your overview, what I want to focus more on is if we're going to put an owner occupant into this property, what do we need to do? And, and how do we, there's going to be a, a significant amount more rules, correct? So um, I just want to make sure that we go over those. Um, help me understand uh, what it is you want to cover uh, now. And then if, if we're, are we still talking about the difference between owner occupied versus non-owner occupied? I think we'll dive more into owner occupied. So okay. how you can structure, you know, certain uh, how long of a term, um, what kind of interest rates, um, what does it mean to hire an RMLO and when do you need to do that um, based on when you're creating notes. So in some different, we can talk about some different uh, situations where you're going to need to do that. Okay. Okay. But, um, but what, why don't you talk about, so the, the, the way that I got to, to meet you basically is through two other investors, um, Jim Benson out of Indianapolis okay. and right. Mike Cowper out of Michigan. And, um, and they're both using creative financing um, to, rather than owning rentals, uh, they're they're selling their properties on contract um, and putting an owner occupant into those properties. Right. And now why don't we talk about how that changes, what rules those change in terms of what we talked about before. So first of all, how many of those would you be allowed to do before um, you, you need to bring in someone like you? Good question. So, however you're putting your deal together uh, is 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 
is, is unimportant. It's irrelevant how you're putting the deal together. What matters is if you as a lender, if you are extending lending terms on a one to four unit dwelling to an owner occupied buyer, you have a requirement through Dodd-Frank to make sure that that buyer through underwriting meets the ability to repay requirement. Can they afford this house and everything else they've got going, everything else they're paying on, can they afford to make these payments? And that requires underwriting. If you're originating deals, which seller finance investors originate deals, the minute you start negotiating terms with an owner-occupied buyer, you are performing the duties of a residential mortgage loan officer, an RMLO. That requires you to be licensed. Now, the SAFE Act, the Federal SAFE Act, does give you uh, five freebies every 12 months. You can do it five times without being licensed uh, in a 12-month period. However, you always have to have it underwritten. You've always got it. There are two separate things. Origination, meaning negotiating mortgage terms. That's origination. That's SAFE Act. Underwriting is Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank, there's no grace period. Every deal has to be underwritten. So how, whether you're converting rental properties, whether you're getting a buyer off the street, whether you you're fix and flip and you're flipping to create a note. None of that matters. The law doesn't change. The minute you extend terms to owner-occupied buyer, that's when the requirements kick in. The same requirements that Wells Fargo Home Mortgage has on them, you have on you. So you've got to, meet, you've got to, you've got to make sure you meet those requirements. So interesting that you brought this up. Um, when you say um, extend terms, can we, uh, so I just want to be clear to all our listeners, would that mean if we're doing um, a lease option and we're renting the property to someone, but giving them the option, would that apply? So, man, that's a really good question. Uh, and it's not covered by, it's not covered by Dodd-Frank. The difference between lease purchase and a mortgage loan uh, is not covered by Dodd-Frank, meaning the security instrument, whether it be a lease purchase, a note and a deed, a note and a mortgage, a contract for a deed, a land contract, is not covered by Dodd-Frank. What Dodd-Frank says is if you extend credit, so you have to decide, am I extending credit? Now, we know that in a, re in, in a, in a residential rental contract, uh, we are not extending uh, credit the person simply occupying and, 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 and paying for the right to occupy a property they have no intention of owning. On a lease purchase, however, uh, it could be deemed um, that you are extending credit because ultimately the buyer has an option to purchase. So we have investors that will put uh, lease purchase uh, uh, tenants uh, in front of us for underwriting for a couple of reasons. Number one is just in case they ever get in front of a judge who says, I believe you're extending credit. And that's all it takes. So the judge you're in front of says, I believe you extended credit. And, you know, story over. His interpretation is going to override your attorney's interpretation or your interpretation. Uh, but, but number two is, you know, they've, they've got a buyer that they're, extending, that, they're, that they're extending these options to who is moving into a home and then one day going to exercise the purchase option and they would, they don't want to get to that point, you know, one, two, five years down the line. And then, you know, the buyer never qualified in the first place. They've taken a down payment. They, the buyer has been paying towards these, 
you know, typically in a lease purchase, you'll see a portion of the rent is going towards the down payment. So all of this, you know, complicated servicing, the buyer has, a, has, has literally money in escrow now that's going to go towards this down payment. Now they don't qualify. So they'd rather know up front that they've got a stable buyer that has a very good chance of qualifying uh, to exercise the purchase option, you know, years down the road or whenever that is, uh, versus waiting until then to figure out, oh my gosh, they don't document their income. So uh, that's why they'll come to us with a lease with a lease purchase deal. Okay, so at the at the very best, lease option is a gray area. Um, right. That, yeah. And my guess would be is the more money you collect as a down payment or an option deposit. Uh, and the more maybe rent credit that you're giving, it's probably looking more and more like you are extending credit as opposed to um, the less down payment. I'm not extending any rent credit. You just have uh, a period of time where you have an option to buy this property. Yeah, I, I would think that you're right. And of course, it's all speculation. I'm not an attorney, but I, you know, I just, you know, I always look at things in terms of of common sense. You know, if I was the judge and I was looking at this, how would I interpret? I, I'm looking at the intent of the people that are involved. Was was the intent to create a note? Was the intent was the intent to one day sell this property? Uh, and I, you know, I've got a I, maybe I don't have even have any case study, you know, or any precedent uh, of a prior deal to look at. And I've got to make the call. You know, I'm going to probably turn to common sense and go, ah, you know, I, I think you had the intent to. Yeah. extend credit uh, at least now or at some point or you know if if like you said you know most of it all went to rent and there was uh you know maybe the portion that went into uh uh you know an escrow account for the down payment uh, if they didn't qualify was going to be returned to them you know i might i might look favorably on that but again you're right it's just gray area and i you're talking to an underwriter and so yeah. i always want to err on the safe yeah. side so, but you, you did mention where my next question was going. So even if you're doing a land contract or a contract for deed where title doesn't actually transfer at the time of closing, that does apply um, where you are extending credit. Is that correct? It absolutely applies. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. And of course, any kind of other... Um, whether it's a wraparound mortgage or an all-inclusive or, you know, the property's free and clear and it's just a mortgage or a trustee to note, all of those apply as well. Absolutely. Anytime you're extending credit, regardless of the security instrument, what the deal looks like, if you're extending credit to an owner-occupied buyer on a one to four unit dwelling, it applies. Okay. So let's talk about that. What about five units and above? What no, it's considered commercial. That's considered commercial property. Dodd um, Frank doesn't apply to commercial property. No, commercials like the Wild Wild West. Uh, they expect <laughs> that you're a more sophisticated investor and yeah, caveat emptor, right? Yeah. There you go. That's exactly it. Yeah. If you're or you know if you have a one unit houseboat sitting on the harbor, that's not considered a dwelling. But okay. uh, a mobile home in a park, not affixed to real estate, is considered a dwelling and falls under Dodd-Frank. We have several investors that that's their model. They do a lot of manufactured housing every month and they do it on seller finance. So it's all yep. Dodd-Frank, yeah. Yep. Very interesting. All right, so let's talk about, um, so the, 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 this can be in any way, you know, that, I just wanna make this clear to our, our listeners that, so I could buy a house cash and 
um, or private money, and then go and sell on terms, and uh, I am extending credit. Um, I, I can create terms through the seller and then resell to um, an owner-occupant, and I am extending credit to a buyer. So those all fall under what we're talking about, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So what do we need to do? What, what, uh, to stay compliant now, what, what would we need to do if we say, all right, now we've got to contact someone like you, Russ, and we've got to say, hey, uh, I need your help. Yeah, so we would say, hey, you know what, hop over to our website, uh, download our loan submission package, or shoot us an email. We'll get our loan submission package back out to you. I actually kind of prefer that. Uh, it lets us to kind of, you know, connect and, and let you know how our process works and, you know, when to collect a fee from the buyer and, and uh, when it's not due. And so we, we want to discuss those terms first, but uh, just reach out to us. We'll get you what you need uh, to uh, have that buyer. The buyer's got some forms to fill out. They need to provide some income documents. We, we, we tell you what income documents need to be obtained uh, from the buyer based on how they make their money. Uh, so you're ha as you're having those conversations with the buyer, hey, I you know, I work for Target and I, you know, I've been there a couple of years. Great. Let's get a, let's get your most recent pay stub and the last two years W-2 as well. I'm self-employed. Uh, okay. Well, let's get your two years, you know, most recent tax returns. Well, I don't really show a lot of income. Well, great. Well, how do the last 12 months bank statements look? Let's get those. Uh, and so however they make their money, that's the income document that's going to be collected. If you get it into us, all of that with the terms of your deal, you don't have to go to contract right away. You can just give us a term sheet, purchase price, loan amount, uh, interest rate, and the terms. Get that to us. We'll underwrite that deal within 48 hours, 48 business hours. You'll have an answer. You'll know if this borrower is a, a yes way, no way, or maybe. And okay. so uh, uh, we'll work then, of course, we'll then connect directly with the buyer to collect anything else we need um, to get them, you know, hopefully get them across uh, that approval line. Uh, and then, uh, of course, if they don't, we'll talk about ways that maybe you can. Maybe we restructure the terms a little bit. Maybe we add a cosigner. Um, uh, it just kind of every borrower is different. So we'll work with that borrower uh, to exercise or find any way we can to, within Dodd-Frank, help you get them across the finish line. Um, uh, once we do, we'll start the, uh, the, the disclosure process for you. We handle all of that. Uh, and then once the, cl the closing disclosure is sent out, you're free to close three days after. And then uh, at the end of the deal, we upload the entire uh, compliance file out to a bank level secured share drive uh, for the investor access. So you basically need, you know, if if you get everything that you need in a timely manner, which you know, I I, I know what it's like to apply for loans, and uh, you, you can only do what you're given. So uh, <laughs> as long as you had everything that you needed in a timely manner, what what's the time frame? Do you think from uh, if if you're able to approve them, you're able to underwrite them and say, yes, um, th this would be a go. Um, from the time that I brought you everything to the time that I say, hey, we, we're ready to close, would it be a week, eight, nine, 10 days, somewhere in that range? Well, you have, this is a great question. Uh, you, at minimum, your disclosure process takes seven business days. Okay. So you're going to lose eight calendar days if you have no holidays in there you're going to lose eight calendar days just to disclosures now however long it takes us to get to the point where we can send disclosures you tack that on so let's just say we get a deal in on a monday and it's complete we have everything we need we'll underwrite it by wednesday if the borrower's fully approved and we need nothing we'll approve and send disclosures that day so wednesday the, the disclosures will go out 
you could close the following Thursday if you don't have a holiday. So that'd be a 10 day process if everything went perfect. Okay. So uh, I try to tell investors, look, set a 14 to 21 day expectation. You can always close early. People love to close early, but they hate to close late. Yeah. So always set a 14 to 21 day expectation in the event there's hiccups and there's always hiccups. And not to mention if the bar, let's say we pull credit and the borrower didn't tell you they had, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in student loans uh, that are in deferment. Well, we still have to hit them with a payment. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if they can't absorb that payment, it's a dead deal unless we can get them to go to the student loan website and, uh, you know, do their, do their simulation for an income-based repayment program. So, again, that's just one issue where maybe something isn't disclosed or apparent at the time they fill out the application that we find on credit. Maybe there's a child support deduction on a pay stub that wasn't disclosed and now we need to copy the divorce decree. So yeah. there's things that will come up. So I always just say, man, set a two to three week uh, expectation and you'll typically, you'll typically be fine with that. And uh, Russ, are you guys looking for a, like a debt to income ratio of uh, like 40 to 50%, 45 to 50% mm. like FHA? I yeah, excellent question. So as you know, it sounds like you're aware that FHA will end up to 58% uh, off your gross income and still be a qualified mortgage, by the way. That's still a QM loan. Um, and so uh, it's not about debt to income ratio. Uh, I know that there's 43% seems to kind of be the buzzword. Uh, that has, that has, that's a whole nother uh, conversation that, that doesn't even necessarily apply uh, to ability to repay. It's more QM on the conforming side. But ATR, ability to repay, again, is more about what's called residual income. And so residual income, if you think about it this way, um, most mortgage programs, whether it's Fannie, Freddie, FHA, qualify you off of your gross income before taxes. Residual income in lending means we're going to qualify you off of the net. And so the CFPB has indicated in their guide, they published a guide back in 2016 on how to comply with Dodd-Frank ability to repay. And it says very specifically in black and white, there is no debt to income threshold. You have to figure out what it is. You have to know that. You have to calculate income as an underwriter would. Uh, and you have to figure out what the debt to income ratio is, but it doesn't end there. You have to figure out if the borrower meets residual income requirements. And here's why, okay? So let's say I'm a single guy, I'm, I'm, I'm a senior, I'm on fixed income. Uh, maybe I get, let's just say I get 1200 bucks a month in social security income. That's my only source of income. I'm gonna do a, a seller finance deal with you as an owner occupied buyer. And the new mortgage payment is gonna be PITI out the door is 300 a month, okay? Now I don't have any other debt. So what's my debt ratio? I've got 300 going out on 1200 coming in. Okay, what's my debt ratio? About 25%, right? Uh -huh. So for all intents and purposes, you'd go, wow, this guy's awesome. This is going to be great. There's no other debt. Uh, I'm, I'm, I got a 25% debt income. Surely he meets Dodd-Frank requirements. Well, what you don't know, because you didn't take the application, is that I have five dependents living with me. I've got all my grandchildren are living with me because their parents are out of the picture. So I've got a household size of six, right? which means my residual income requirement based on this house I'm going to live in for where it is in the country and the loan amount, I've got to have a thousand dollars a month to meet residual income requirements. And because I only have 900 left over, I don't meet ability to repay requirements, even with a debt to income of 25%.
So we always have to drill down through residual income tests, every buyer's ability to repay based on the net. So we have to underwrite the gross and the net to make sure they, they actually certify. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, great question. Okay. Yeah, Russ, um, can we talk a little bit about how we structure or what we can and can't do maybe to structure some of these notes? Um, sure. Like, hey, you know, it, it's not unheard of for uh, an investor to sell a property with owner financing with a significantly higher interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is what is uh, what's enough, but maybe too much? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is a great question. Yeah, this is probably the most uh, maybe the second or third most commonly asked question. Um, you know, after uh, after when do I have to call you? That's that's usually the most commonly asked question. Uh, well, and but, then I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna hit you up with one of the more popular ones right after this one. So okay, all right, <laughs> sounds good. So interest rate, what's the cap on the interest rate? Well, if, you're, if the state you're doing business in has a usury law, uh, you want to default to that. So it's always a, a call to a local attorney uh, to find out if the state has any usury laws or you know, research it yourself. Um, you know, here in Arizona, the usury law on the books dates, back, dates way, way back, and it's, it's 10%. However, there's a clause that says you can have a higher interest rate uh, on a home loan, as long as you and the buyer agree in writing. So really it means there's no usury law. So what can you charge? What does Dodd-Frank want to see? Well, um, there's a term called APOR, uh, the average prime offer rate. And what it really means is what is Fannie's rate today? What's Fannie's rate today on a 30 year fixed mortgage? Right now it's about 3%. I don't know what it is today. You can Google it every day and the APOR will be a little different, but it's a moving target, but we all know that rates, you, you can get a 3% mortgage loan uh, with 20% down from Fannie Mae. So whatever that rate is, okay, your rate can be 6.5% higher and still be okay for Dodd-Frank. You can still do your balloon payment as long as it's five years out. Uh, you can do up to a 30-year term um, and not have any real issue. Uh, most of what we see are what are categorized as higher priced mortgage loans. And that's anything that's above one and a half percent between one and a half percent and six and a half percent above Fannie Mae street rate. Okay. So if it's 3%, you could be between four and a half and uh, what? Nine and a half, 10, nine and a half. We said three, right? So nine and a half and still be, within that acceptable ratio. Now let's say Russ, I want to, I want to, I want 10% or I'm doing mobile homes and I want to get 14%. We actually do quite a few of those. Sure. And, and so you can do 14%. Um, but what it, what it, what it then classifies is, is, is it's what's called HCM high cost mortgage. You can still do it, not an issue, but some things change, meaning you can no longer do a balloon payment. And the buyer is going to have to do some home ownership counseling before they close. So just there's some nuances when you go to increase your interest rate and we let the lender know, hey, look, you know, the bells went off, the whistles went off, your, your HCM, can we bring the rate back down a little bit? Otherwise, the borrower needs to do some home ownership counseling. I personally am a fan of home ownership counseling, uh, even if the interest rate's six and a half because it educates the buyer uh, and it looks really good on you as a lender anything you can do to educate the buyer. 
so, but as, but when it becomes HCM, it becomes mandatory. Okay, so let me see if I, if I can summarize okay. that. All right. The first is the state usury laws, right? So you can't right. exceed that unless there's, unless you find that loophole, like you mentioned in Arizona. Uh, Correct. Okay, so if your if your state is a ten percent usury law, then ten percent is your max. Correct. Correct. Okay. If uh, but to to be remain Dodd Frank compliant, that we really want to be somewhere between one and a half and six percent, basically of what is being offered right now at a conventional mortgage, twenty percent down kind of thing. Yeah, Which, I would say just to keep it simple, no more than six and a half percent above right. Fannie Mae's rate today. Right. Okay. Yep. So, um, which uh, to some degree, I mean, is there any flexibility there? Because, um, you know, uh, is there a place to go and find out exactly what Fannie Mae is today? Because if you just go and look, you'll find different rates, right? You'll find... Hey. No, if you just Google what is today's APOR, it'll take you right to bankrate.com. It'll Google okay. will pop it up. Yeah, it's it's everybody looks for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. So all right. So now we we, we understand where we can be, and it's quite the range, right? Um, and then oh, you sure. can even. Yeah. So when 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 you have these clients charging fourteen percent, does that mean that the usury laws in those states are above that? Correct. Okay. Um, so that, 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 that may dictate where you want to do some of your investing based on, you know, if you're doing mobile homes, um, I don't know, uh, you might want to be in a state that their usury law is above 10. So, uh, <laughs> so at least make sure that you're getting the value. I mean, some of these things are, you know, 20 grand. So, yeah. And you know, and th that's a great point. I mean, and don't rely on us. I mean, yes, we, you know, we use the most up-to-date loan origination software and uh, you know, when the rate goes to a certain point, you know, the bells and whistles go off and it tells us there's alerts that are in place that say, Hey, wait a minute, you're exceeding it. Illinois is famous for uh, being very confusing on, on interest rates and APOR that, they're actually the one state that we're aware of that has a more stringent high cost mortgage threshold. I think while the Fed is six and a half, if you're in Illinois and not just Illinois, but Cook County, Illinois, hmm. uh, it's 6%. So instead of, instead of you being able to go to nine and a half today, if the rate was three, you can only go to nine uh -huh. uh, in that part of Illinois. So yeah, and our, and our, again, our system goes off, but again, if you're gonna, if you're new to a state and you don't know the usury law, and I would definitely get a local attorney just to have one so that you can get those state-specific questions answered properly. Okay, yeah. so I know you've got to go in just a minute here, um, but we got to talk about balloon payments. And okay. Whether they're allowed, not allowed, how long they can be, how short they can be. Let's see if we can at least get through balloon payments, and then I think uh, – uh, We'll move forward, and I think you will have done everything that anyone could have asked for. <laughs> All right. Well, balloon payments are just fine with Dodd-Frank as long as they're at least five years out. Uh, Dodd-Frank doesn't like anything sooner than five years. Um, what, I've, what I've encouraged investors to do, if they're going to offer a balloon payment, and ironically, we don't see a lot of balloon payments. We really don't. Hmm. Um, if you're going to do a balloon payment, um, I would put a clause uh, in your note 
whatever security instrument you're using, land contract, whatever, that at year four, you and the buyer agree to meet verbally in person and talk about their ability to exercise the balloon option. Are they going to be able to take you out as promised? Are they going to be able to qualify for a better mortgage? You know, have that discussion and then somewhere in there, you know, leave room for, you know, an, an extension clause to give the buyer a little wiggle room, uh, you know, for another, another few months to make things happen. Uh, or, you know, it just, it looks really, really good uh, when you're for the buyer and you do everything you can as a lender uh, to set them up for success. But as far as Dodd-Frank goes, balloons are just fine uh, five years out. Uh, but again, if you do go over that high cost mortgage threshold, uh, if, you're, if you're up there in the rafters, uh, it's fine, uh, but you lose the ability to, uh, to do a balloon payment. At all. At all. At all, okay. Yep. Um, let me ask you, because I've done a number of balloon payments at three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously not Dodd-Frank compliant. And um, what can I do to now make that at least um, where, you know, I, I'm not putting myself at risk in terms of um, my buyers. Like I have one that's, you know, it's a three-year balloon. It's been three and a half years. I haven't, I haven't done anything about it. Okay. Um, they, they continue to pay. And, okay. Um, but well, in, in your opinion, what, what would you do from here to try to, you know, to stay as compliant as I can be based on what I've already done? Um, I think what I would do is if I was just in your shoes, um, I would, get with the, I would, the first thing I would do is reach out to the buyer okay. and say, Hey, you know, the, the balloon payment kind of came and went, I, I, I'm okay. Um, what's your position? Are you trying to, you know, you're trying to take this mortgage out? Are you trying to get refinanced? Do we, you know, should we do, I'd like to somehow get a, a formal extension in place and then drive it out to five years okay. is what I would do. And then if it ever, if you ever have to answer for it, you can at least say, Hey, you know, I had no idea. And when I did find out, I took action to remedy. That's big. I mean, it's, it's, it, these things come back down to intent. Um, you know, people, people only burn when they're trying to burn. Right. And so if you're in it for the buyer and you, 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 you make it right, um, that, those things go a long way. Even if, you know, when, we, when you look at the laws around the SAFE Act and, it, and, it, and it, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at what happens to somebody who's originating loans, without a license. First of all, uh, what the law says is, are you originating um, a mortgage loan for gain? So are you doing it for gain? Are you doing it, uh, and, what, and what is the gain? Is it, is it to originate a loan that, where, where it's a win-win for the buyer as well as the lender? You know, or are you originating and charging you know, massive fees and you're the one who's winning, you know, so there's, there's different levels of intent there. And that will determine, you know, um, your, your, your penalties, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's not just, oh my God, I, you know, I, I originated without a license. I, I didn't know. And it's 10 grand, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm going to get the max fine per occurrence. Um, it's not, it always doesn't always happen that way. There's, intent is a big part of, uh, you know, ramifications when it comes to enforcing uh, these laws. 
So can I ask you one one last question? Yeah. And I want to make sure that you give your contact information. So if people sure. need your underwriting services, your RMLO services, that they know how to contact you. Um, you know, uh, so you, you deal in, and th this is a little bit off topic, but, you know, it's something that uh, based on this podcast that Jonathan and I have been doing for a couple of years now, that we hear a lot of, and it'd be great to get your take on this, um, the due on sale clause. And uh -huh. uh, so you, you're dealing with owner financing and unless, you know, it was um, bought, unless that property was bought with private money or paid cash and is free and clear, um, you know, there's some kind of wrap or some kind of, um, existing you know underlying debt that you're dealing with that almost for sure has a due on sale clause in it uh-huh um is it do you deal a lot with that um we've never dealt with it we know that it's there we know that investors are wrapping mortgages that have to every mortgage has a due on sale clause if it's a conforming or a hud insured or a va insured mortgage there's always a due on sale clause um i've been doing this for 23 years almost 24 years, I've never seen HUD call a note due, especially one that was current. I haven't seen Fannie call one due. I, it's probably happened. It just, it doesn't happen uh, enough to where we, we really hear about it. Um, I, I, and I, I just, I'm, I'm actually in the process of doing my first, you know, seller finance deal. I had a, uh, a, a friend of mine um, that got caught up in some things, uh, some stuff kind of caught up with him. Uh, and he's, you know, he went to the uh, Gray Bar Hotel for a while. Ouch. And uh, yeah, and I met the guy actually at church and that's how we kind of got acquainted. And we were just kind of talking through some things he was going through. And then one day he just kind of disappeared. And, and I was like, wow, what happened to, you know, what happened to old Vic, you know? And, and I got a letter from jail and oh, he's wow. like, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I want to know if I can deed my house over to you. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't do a lot of drama and i know this is going to have some hair on it but i said you know if i can help you get it sold and satisfy some debts and you know help you out and put some money away for you if you're going to be there for a while i'll do it and so um and in all my doing that it's been quite it's been a very dramatic you know it's just sure. it's drama yeah. and so but I, I i say that to say this um that there's an underlying uh lien um from a very large mortgage lender yeah. and um, you know, I took title by way of warranty deed back in February yeah. and I've never gotten a letter from Chase I've, and the, and the deals, it, his deals in foreclosure. Yeah. The only reason it hasn't foreclosed is because of COVID. Yeah. And so the deal is as far delinquent as you hasn't seen a payment since June of 19. It's long in the foreclosure. They just keep extending the date yep. and I've never gotten a, a letter or a call like, Hey, this notes due. we see that it's transferred hand. I've not received anything. So while I can't sit here and say, I'm, you know, no, it's never going to happen. I've just never seen it happen. It hasn't happened to me personally. And, you know, I, I don't know, not sure how to answer that question, but it's that's certainly how I, seem, that's exactly yeah. what I wanted was just your opinion. Been in being in this business for a long time, dealing with yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's always so interesting to me, the do on sale clauses, you know, but, but, there is a, a legal and ethical way of doing creative finance, doing owner finance, yet there's this due on sale clause that 
is like hanging around that says, yeah, whenever we want, we, we might just call that due. And, and <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. You know, it's it kind of the, yeah. the whole purpose. But yeah. um, now, if after I said that, I get a letter from Chase tomorrow, <laughs> I'm going to call you. Yeah, we're going to have you back on. We'll talk. Take about you it. off my Christmas list. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Russ, tell people where they can get a hold of you and where they can use you for their creative financing needs. Sure thing. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, guys, for having us on. Uh, you, can, you can find us um, at www.calltheunderwriter.com. We're on Facebook, Facebook slash Call the Underwriter. I don't spend a whole lot of time on there. We just had four record months of seller finance deals, so I've been a little off the boards lately. But you can email us, Russ, at calltheunderwriter.com, and then our, our phone number's on the website. So we're, we're pretty easy to catch. Awesome. It has been long overdue. We should have had you on like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate it. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, thanks for unfortunately, Dodd Frank and Safe Act aren't that exciting. You know, it's not the exciting stuff to talk about, no. but it's necessary. So, yeah, uh, yeah I appreciate it. Yep. Uh, you bet. Thank you guys. Appreciate it once again. Thanks, yeah. Russ. Take care. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up our episode with Russ O'Donnell. And um, hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you realize why this is an important topic and uh, hope you picked up some key pieces of information here on uh, how to become compliant and um, it was kind of a no-brainer that you know if you're if you're doing a lot of these deals you probably should get an underwriter and their fee was I think pretty pretty reasonable um, and so definitely go out there and and you know find an, an underwriter a loan originator um, because if, if you're doing a lot of these deals, you want to, you want to protect yourself. You want to say anything on that, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that I've just found out is that, you know, I knew offering balloon payments were questionable. Um, but, uh, I do a lot of three year kind of deals and, um, you know, now we'll look at uh, changing that just a bit to, to remain compliant. So, uh, yeah, I learned something too. Uh, I'm not a Dodd-Frank Safe Act expert. I, I have some information, probably enough to make me dangerous. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> cool. All right, guys. Well, we'll wrap it up here. Um, if you want to reach us on our hotline, that's 877-409-8090. You can also text CFP to that phone number for uh, special access to a video on step-by-step offer creation on, uh, on a seller finance deal that Jeff did, uh, where he walks you step-by-step um, -step through that deal from start to finish. Uh, so get that there. You can find all of our episodes at the creativefinancingpodcast.com. And uh, we're on Facebook at Creative Financing Podcast and uh, Instagram at the same handle. So any last words, Jeff? Go to our Facebook page if you're interested in um, getting some deal structuring help with properties that you are already working on or need some help working on. And uh, don't forget, call our hotline, um, uh, our apprentice program. We're working nationwide with people all over. That is based on wholesaling uh, with a creative financing component. Just give a, a call at the hotline. I will get back to you. 
And then don't forget, um, yeah, we should be up and running by the time that this this podcast hits on our um, the Creative Financing Academy. Um, strictly information on how to use creative financing in your real estate business. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. So if you guys are interested in that, call our hotline and let us know that you're interested in the Creative Financing Academy. Hey guys, until next time, go out there and create some terms. Thanks for listening to the Creative Financing Podcast. We need your feedback to continue to bring you the best strategies in creative financing. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate your ear and please pass this on. Until next time, create some terms. This show offers general information on creative financing strategies and real estate investments. Nothing contained herein should be considered personal, legal, or financial advice. Every state has individual laws governing the use and type of documents used to execute strategies discussed herein. You should consult with a local licensed real estate broker and attorney before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed, and opinions of the guests are their own. Profits are not guaranteed, and there's always inherent risk in real estate investing.